um, a Bible with you, or if you have a device, you'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 2. So as you're turning um, to Acts or typing Acts in, just a little bit of um, recap. So typically, about 99% of the time here at Redeemer, we are preaching through a book of the Bible, just chapter by chapter, week after week, month after month. And so we began um, Luke's uh, Acts, which is the second part of Luke, right? So we have Luke, the Gospel, and then Acts. Luke is the author of both. Um, It's a a sequel to Luke, as he is basically covering from the announcement, right, of of John the Baptist through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the first generation, first 30 years or so of the church. Um, It's written in the mid-60s, right? And, And it's a theological history looking to kind of document what God is doing um, through the church. He is not commentating as much as he's just kind of showing us what is taking place now that Jesus has ascended and as the church is beginning to go forth out of Jerusalem, right? And so we are going to have to wrestle with some what, what are normative things and acts that we are being told, prescribed as a church that we need to do. And what are things that are descriptive, right, that were merely in in that moment, in that day. Um, And and so we're going to wrestle through some of those things. We're going to see the church respond um, to a world power um, that is going to bring persecution, is going to bring pressure, and how do they react and respond to that. Um, And and we're going to see the church move forward. And so Luke's primary intent is to provide us an orderly account, is what he tells us in Luke 1, um, and to give us a firm foundation to stand on. And so last week we tackled um, an incredibly large section of Scripture, some 50 plus verses, to kind of lay a foundation of where we're headed, because all of those um, thoughts and ideas that we saw in the end of Acts 1 through the bulk of Acts 2 will be addressed throughout Acts. Okay, and so this morning we'll look at a more maybe manageable portion of Scripture. Um, so let's begin in Luke 2. We're going we're gonna to re- go back to verse 37. We, we did cover this last week, but we're going to make sure we're understanding the context of the end of chapter 2. So after Pentecost has happened where the Spirit has fallen, right? Um, Peter has now preached, and the, the crowd is beginning to say, what do we do now? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and who are all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God, our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's where we left off last week, and now as we pick up. And they devoted themselves, meaning the the 3,000 plus now, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So I want you to remember at the end of Luke in chapter 24, right, as, as this gospel is being finished, that the disciples were huddled. They were afraid. Listen in um, verse 37 of Luke 24. It says, um, when, so Jesus appears to them, and then in verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, my, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see as I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. Right? He asked them then for something to eat. But what we, what we are seeing there in Luke 24 was that they were huddled, they were afraid, they were doubting. Was the kingdom going to come? This isn't how we thought things were going to go. They were confused, and they weren't waiting with expectation that Jesus was about to walk through the door. But here now, in Acts chapter 2, right, we see that the, the church at this point now, they're waiting because Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's told them, wait in Jerusalem. We're, we're watching them wait with expectation and prayer. The Spirit has now fallen, right? And so they've gone from this kind of huddled group of survivors, right, to this hopeful group that has seen God do what He has promised to do, that He is going to work and move among them. And we see their, their attitude, that their expectation is already being adjusted accordingly. And what I want us to note before we look at this passage specific, because the Holy Spirit fell in Acts 2 earlier, right, and they, they spoke in languages, right, that, uh, that other nations were going, wait, these, these are Galileans. These are uneducated, uncultured people who don't speak right. And yet I'm hearing them speak in my native heart, language, and tongue. And the gospel was going forth to all these Jews who were gathered who were going to go back out to the nations. Right? They're seeing this take place. And the Holy Spirit has moved with, with power and with sight, with, with the, the, the tongues of fire above their heads, and with signs and wonders. And it's, it's beautiful and it's powerful. But what do you notice? It says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves then to the apostles' teaching. I think it's important for us to note as we see the Spirit move throughout Acts, as we've seen one of the primary biggest moments ever here in Acts chapter 2, that that experience with the Spirit, right, doesn't negate our need to know and to learn and to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of God as it is revealed in Scripture. Right? The Spirit has moved powerfully and the disciples at this point know, say, okay, well, that's all I now need is that. So they go back and say, we have seen the Lord empower us and equip us, and now we're going to teach the things we know by the power of the Spirit for like, the testifying of Jesus. John 15, 26 tells us that the Spirit's job is to testify about Jesus, and that He is doing that even here as He is moving in power. Maybe... Um, it, it's helpful for us to see that what's going on is that there is both structured things. They're gathering daily, there's structure, and there's planning to it. 
And there's also an informality and a spontaneous nature to it. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And most of us in the room feel more comfortable probably on one end of the spectrum than the other. Some of you are like, man, I want spontaneous, I want unplanned. If that's not it, then the Spirit's not working, right? And others are like, that freaks me out. So please don't do that. I want to know exactly what's going to take place. I want it ordered and structured and planned. And please don't deviate from it without written notice, right? And yet we see the Spirit here working and moving in spontaneity and in planning. We see Him working in informality and we see Him working in structure. It's not one or the other. It is both. And that they are working to make sure folks are taken care of and they cannot dictate when the Spirit falls as He did in Pentecost. They cannot control that. Right? It happens when God sees fit to do it. And maybe it would help us to look and consider. I know we've gone back to Exodus a lot here lately as we consider and think about the, the, the birth of the church happening. But in, you go back to Exodus. God worked in powerful, dramatic ways to rescue His people from Egypt through signs and wonders and power. Like He rescues and pulls His people out. And then as they go into the wilderness, he still occasionally is doing things like that, right? He's leading them by a pillar of fire at night and by smoke, right? He's, he parts the Red Sea. But there are also just days that are just days. And one isn't more God, and one isn't less God. It is both. There are days where God pours out, and it is evident to all who see. And there are days where we walk in faithfulness, and the Lord has not left us. And He's not forsaken us. And yet the people of God, right, in Exodus begin to go, this isn't really what we wanted. We're not seeing you do these incredible things anymore. This is hard. This is difficult. Let's go back to being slaves. The church here is responding in a much healthier fashion. right? They've seen God fall in power through His Spirit, giving it and equipping it. And now what do they do? They begin to gather and say, we want more. We want to know Him. We want to trust Him. We want to follow Him. And we see the church responding how the nation of Israel was meant to have responded, right, in Exodus. Okay, so it's important for us to note then, there are some implications that arise when the gospel is heard, when it's understood, and when it's believed. It's not one of those things where like, Peter, excellent service, glad to hear that sermon, glad to have some more information, now I'm going to go on. No, there are implications that come forward. It's not just, I got it, that was fun, that was good. Notice what they do. So in verse 41, in that one sermon, 3,000 people added. Right? It's a large group of people. And in verse 42, and they devoted themselves. It's not willy-nilly. Right? It's not like, we'll, we'll see when God does something big again. It, they then had planning and intent and purpose, and energy to say, okay, now how do we walk in this? How do we grow from this? How do we continue what God is doing? There is intent and purpose and energy. They are not drifting and going, well, let's just see when God does something big again. They act on it. And they're not isolated. They don't say, Peter, thank you for the sermon. I now have what I personally need. The rest of you do what you want. 
They are called into a family, into the church, into a community together. And so it says, not some, it says they. they the three, they've devoted themselves to what? We're going to see four things they've devoted themselves to with energy and effort. The first being the apostles' teaching. At this point, they don't have scriptures. We know it, right? They're not passing out Bibles to everyone. What are they going back to? They're going back first to the Old Testament scriptures that, that we're promising and telling them, listen, the Messiah is coming. God is going to redeem. God is going to restore. God is going to make things right. right? They're going back to these promises like Jeremiah 31 there will be a day where there's a new covenant and you no longer will one have to say to another, you know God, because you'll all be able to know God because He's going to put His Spirit within you. As Danny read from Ezekiel 36, right, that God will, is going to put new hearts, right, stamps with God. Right, so they're going to the Old Testament and teaching and showing how it's Jesus. We saw Peter do that last week in quoting Psalm 110 and other Psalms that he was going to the Old Testament saying, it's now been fulfilled in Jesus. It's Jesus. They're also sharing their experience about the life of Jesus. They had three plus years where they're able to say, and he taught us this, and he did this, and he showed us this. And at one point, right, they, man, these folks, they, they ripped the ceiling out, and they lowered their buddy down, and Jesus looks at them and says, Right, your sins are forgiven. And everyone was going nuts because they're like, who can forgive sins but God? He says, well, you don't think I can do that? Get up and walk. Right? And so they're, they're sharing these experiences of here's what we saw Jesus do and here's the teaching that followed it. It wasn't just signs and wonders. It was truth. It was both. And so they're sharing from their experience. They're sharing from the Old Testament. Listen, we, we looked at Luke 24 in regards to them being huddled and fearful. But do you remember how Luke ends it? This is in verse 45 of Luke 24. He says, speaking of Jesus, He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus, during this time, has made them understand Scripture to see and make these connections. And the disciples now are teaching these new believers all that they know. Can you imagine the impact of Peter saying, and I denied him three times. Across the courtyard, rooster crows and he looks at and he restored me. He didn't leave me. He didn't forsake me. He didn't say he was done with me. And so now as they're reading the Old Testament, right, the promise that God will never leave nor forsake, Peter's going, that's true. Because I forsook him. And he did not forsake me. They're sharing of their experience in the Old Testament Scriptures and Jesus' teaching. And they're getting to say in good news, He's alive. We've seen Him, right, for 50 days. And He ascended to heaven. And He's charged us with this message to take it to the ends of the earth. And He's going to come back, right? And so we can pray to Him, right? The, the disciples remembering, right, as they're fearful before the cross. And Jesus is telling them, I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back for you. And I'm going to leave the Spirit for you. And you have one another. All these graces, the disciples are teaching all the new believers these things, and they're devoted to it. 
So they are submitting to God's Word. Right? They're learning it and submitting to it. And they're also submitting to one another. And the second thing they're devoted to is this. Submitting to one another is fellowship. Listen. If there's been a word that's been neutered and cheapened and lost its significance and weightiness, it has got to be the word fellowship. Right? Like it is on every church flyer in history. Right? What are we going to gather for? Food, fun, and what? Fellowship. Right? Like it's just thrown out there all the time. Like some of you probably hear the word fellowship and you're like, gross. Right? Like, like it's, it just, you're like, I know what that means. That means um, sad potluck. Right? And it's the church's way of saying, we're going to try to have fun. Right? Like, but it, it's, it's, it has been neutered and cheapened and, and lost the deep theological meaning and significance that it has through overuse. What is fellowship referring to here? That they had everything in common. That they deeply, deeply needed one another. And so their fellowship, right, was that they had some things in common. What do they have in common? They had a need. That they were separated from God in desperate need of rescue. And what else do they have in common? The rescuer. That Jesus was the one who has leveled the playing field and said, you need me, and you need me, and you need me, and you can have me. You can taste and see that I'm good, and you can be at peace with God. And so it is a grace to gather in fellowship. Why? Because God has given us one another. Church, as we look around the room even this morning, everyone sitting here is a, is a gift to you from God who has said you need them. And he says the church is a family. It's a body. And we need one another to be a functioning, healthy body that He's going to give to every local congregation everything that they need. Right? Not, not any one person is going to have everything you need. You're going to need most of them. Right? Nope. You're going to need all of them. And we have brothers and sisters around the world this morning who do not have this. They are isolated and they are alone. Right? They're unable to gather or there's just not anyone to gather with. Would we not take for granted that we get to fellowship? And not in the cheap way, right? But that we have folks around us who are going to point us to Jesus, that we get to do this with, that He has made us family. Listen, God has literally given each of us to the other. I want you to listen to a couple passages in Hebrews. In Hebrews, the church is struggling with persecution, and they're being encouraged to, to persist, to not drift, to, to sustain. Right? And he writes this. This is Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you, in any of you, of evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall, fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so he's saying part of what fellowship looks like is us saying, no, 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 chin up. No, 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 I know, I, I got you. I keep looking at Jesus. You're not alone in this. We need one another. You are, the potential is to be deceived and hardened by sin. We can't let that happen. We have to exhort and encourage one another. 
And then in Hebrews 10, we have a second passage. And he says this in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another, right? This is mutual here, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so he says, hey, there's going to be a tendency to be like, tired. And you need to encourage one another to lift your chin and to look to the horizon to see that Jesus, He's coming. He's going to come for us. That we have our hope set upon Him. And we need one another in order to do that. And so there will be days where you are the encourager, you are the exhorter, and there will be days where you need it. And one of the ways that God has sustained us is He's given us one another in order to do that. Just as they're learning and seeing this here in Acts chapter 2. Listen, are there issues with 3,000 people being added to the church in one day? Yes. And we're going to see some of those coming in Acts quickly. It's beautiful and idyllic, right? In Acts chapter 2, you're like, man, the church is beautiful. If I could find that church, I would go to it. No, you wouldn't, right? Because it's going to go astray in a hurry. Where, where they're like, um, people are fighting, right? About ethnicity, and they're fighting about cliques, and they're fighting about who's being taken care of and who gets... Like, there, there are issues that emerge because we are living in a fallen world and we are being sanctified from one degree of glory to the next. And God doesn't say, sorry. He says you have one another. So take effort and take intentionality, right? And become a family. And so He's going to warn us against cliques. He's going to warn us against partiality. In the church in Corinth, He has to say, hey, some of you, because you're wealthy, you're getting there early and taking the Lord's Supper and letting the poor people sit outside. What are you doing? Like, you are a family. And like He is drawing them together and reminding them that Acts 2 is the model. And yet, our sin nature is going to want to pull us apart and separate us. And so He's calling us and reminding us and showing us, be devoted not just to good teaching, but be devoted also to one another, to fellowship, to having everything in common. And He doesn't say to the apostles, you be devoted to these things. He says it to the church, it's all of us. We are all called to be devoted to one another, to be devoted to good teaching. And listen, in its basic form, this is discipleship. Right? He doesn't then say, and then go to Discipleship 101 class. Right? What he's saying is this, you are being made into the image of Jesus. You are being made a disciple as you live in close proximity with, to one another day in and day out. Eating together, praying together, teaching together, knowing one another together. That you are word-saturated. That all of your life becomes worship. And listen, Sometimes I think if we're not sitting, like our culture tells us if someone is not speaking information to you, that you're not learning and you're not being discipled. But that is not true. Listen, if you're a young woman sitting around a seasoned woman or grandmother, right, watching her and how she relates and talks and does, like she is discipling you into the image of Jesus. 
and she has been trusted him over decades. Right? Right? As, as you watch someone faithfully be generous and spend their money, and you're like, that's not what I would have done with my money. Why did you do that? And they begin to show you where they've learned this from Scripture. Right? There may not have been a financial discipleship class, but they are discipling you, right? To, to be Christ-honoring in your giving. Listen, church, if you look around and you see someone and you're like, they crush it in this area. Right? There's just something specific that I'm not good at, and they do a great job of this. Ask them, hey, w- would you meet with me? Like, just for a month, right? Like once a week for a month. Just walk me through how you got to where you're at. Tell me your story. Tell me the verses. Like, like it doesn't have to be that you wait for someone to tap you and say, I want to now disciple you, young Padawan. Right? Like, it's not, it's, you see something you want, go get it. Like, ask for someone to speak into your life. If you see, like, and so this is what's happening, is it's happening on the, the daily moments, interactions. That's all of life. They're gaining clarity. They're seeing people's sin lived out and corrected. They're seeing people's holiness shaped and modeled. Our culture, right, says, hey, run as hard as you can until you drop dead. Right? Pretty much that's what our culture tells us. You run as hard as you can and then die. There is intentionality to be devoted to something else. To look around and say, I'm going to be devoted to the people of God. That I'm going to, I'm going to create with effort space in my life to bring people in and to be in their life. It is not going to happen easily or naturally. It is going to take devotion and striving and effort to be encouraged and to correct and to receive encouragement and to receive correction. And so he continues to flesh out what does fellowship look like? And that's the end here. He says it's, the, it's meals, right? It's the breaking of bread in verse 42, right? And verse 46, day by day, uh, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. So it's happening in a formal place in, in the temple, and it's happening in an informal place in a home as you're eating together. Because there's something about sitting across the table from someone, breaking bread, where you're like, you have to see them. And I don't just mean like you're with your eyes. You have to see them. Because someone knows real quick if you're disinterested in eating with them. If they're not actually welcome at your table. Like, it does, like listen, it does not take long for you to sit somewhere and be like, wrong table. Right? Like, go back to junior high or high school for just a second. Right? And yes, food is being consumed, and you know you're not welcome. But it doesn't stop as 13-year-olds. Right? It, it can continue throughout life. And one of the things that, listen, I, I love is I know this week, anecdotally, that multiple folks in this room who would not ever want to be pointed out have had broken folks who are far from the Lord at your dinner table this week. And you're not doing it to be applauded, and you're not telling anyone. You just have taken serious acts too that Jesus rescues. And that we were all far from Him, and one of the ways He brings us close is through the table. And so we do that to, to see people, to give them a place to belong, to have conversation, right? To hear people's story. And the second thing is, is not just through meals, it's through prayers, right? 
he says, right, that, they, that day by day they attended the temple together, they broke breads in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. I love that it's not um, cold, but it's joyful. But in verse 42 it says, not just the breaking of bread, but of prayers. They're doing even that together. Why does he talk about prayer here? Because they're learning to depend upon God for his provision, for his guidance, for his decision-making, right? To help them be led and filled and guided by the Spirit. So, he says meals and he says prayers intentionally. So I want you to imagine now, if you're having meals with folks around your family, around your church all the time, and you are praying together often, here's what's going to happen. You're going to begin to see needs that are practical and spiritual both and legitimate, and you're going to have the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to do something about that. I want you to meet this need. And so listen, he says, verse 43, So awe came upon every soul through many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. He doesn't even get into that. And all who believed were together, verse 44, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds, the proceeds to all as any had need. And he just kind of just like flies right past it. Listen, this is not socialism, right? There's not a because here's no one is saying, You're in the church, give us everything. That is not what's taking place. The verbiage here is imperfect. It's saying when there was a need. Right? They periodically sold something and took care of people. It wasn't a once and for all and it's done. It was when there was a need, it was dealt with because people knew the needs, the Spirit was guiding, and they were holding loosely to the things of this world. Because what did Luke show us throughout his Gospel? Hey, there's a real risk in your possessions possessing you. Like parable after parable, story after story, where Luke talks about the rich and possessions all the time. Like, you got tired of hearing about it, right? But he's saying, hold them loosely so that when you see the need and the Spirit is guiding you, that you're like, here you go, glad to care for you, brother or sister in Christ. We see that they met in homes, so they're not all selling their properties. In 1 Timothy 6, um, Paul addresses the rich. He's not, like, shaming or condemning them. But what he's saying is that we hold these things loosely, we trust the provision of God, and in the meantime, we're generous. We let Him direct and guide us. Would we not forget what John will tell us? This is 1 John three, seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Like He's just asking the question like, what? Where does it come from? It comes from Acts 2. That God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That He cares for our needs. And He's made us a family to care for one another. To make sure that we're alright. Listen, we, before we got into Acts, we spent the end of the summer with a series we called Gospel Culture. If there is one passage that is a microcosm of what we were trying to do, it's Acts 2. Now in that series, we never went to Acts 2 because I knew we were coming to Acts 2 quickly. But it was meant to give us some hooks to begin to hang things on of, right, like, what is happening here in Acts 2, 42-47? They are living out the one another's of Scripture together. 
They are benefiting and discipling one another. And because of that, what is developing? Fragrant aroma. Corinthians, as Paul writes to the Corinthians. And because of that, what happens? Look at verse 47. They're praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so what we see beginning to occur is there's this like cycle, right? Where where you fall in love with Jesus, and because you have fallen in love with Jesus and He's rescued you, an older, more seasoned saint, that doesn't mean someone who's necessarily chronologically older, but someone who's just known Jesus longer, brings you along and begins to point you to Jesus. And you begin to be discipled, and you begin to belong, and you begin to see Him, and your hands begin to loosen the grip of all the things of the world. And so you're kind, and you're generous, and you are joyful as you're doing it, not begrudging. And you're making much of Jesus, and people go, that's different, that smells good, how do I get in on that? And then you tell them about Jesus, and they love and trust Jesus. And then the, right, like, it's the mission of the church. And God is doing it, right? Yes, sometimes in these beautiful 3,000 people in one day through one sermon. And sometimes it's just in your home around a dinner table. Sometimes it's just at the coffee shop. Sometimes it's just in a moment at work. Listen, this coming Sunday, a week from today, we're doing baptisms in, at the, in, in, a, in a church cookout next Sunday night that everyone's invited to. But one of the things I've been doing the last few weeks is just talking to folks who are interested in baptism and hearing the unique ways and stories in which God has rescued them. And there is not one story. Everyone is varied. Some of them, it was folks at work who just pointed them to Jesus faithfully. Some of them, it was parents who persisted and were faithful to point them to Jesus. Some it was through friendship. Some it was through other relationships. Right? It, it's varied and unique, and yet God is doing this, right? As people are praising God, as they're receiving people with glad and generous hearts, that God gives favor with all the people, and the Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. Church, God speaks beyond Sunday morning. And He speaks even beyond gospel community. And He speaks beyond Bible studies. Right? He is working and moving in every moment of the day and every relationship and interaction you have that you are either pointing people to Jesus and this fragrant aroma of Him, right? Or you're distracting them from Him. Like there's no real neutral ground here. That Jesus has stirred their affection. That they want new things and so they're willing to devote time and energy to it. Church, would we, as we have seen and delighted in Jesus, would we be devoted to the things of Him as He stirs new affections for us. Do you notice that Luke doesn't give us a ton of details of how they're managing 3,000 people all of a sudden? It's intentional that he doesn't. Because if, if he said, and, and here's, how we, here's how we organized and here's what we did, and like what would we be doing today? We would be doing, right, first century Jerusalem activity this morning. But instead, there's some freedom here to care for the flock that is among us in the culture that we're in, in the era that we're in, as we point people to Jesus. They, verse 43, and we'll be done. 
all came upon every soul. You could also put in instead of all fear. Like there is a respect that God is present. That God is here and He is working and He is moving and I'm benefiting from it and they're benefiting from it and we're benefiting from it. Listen, we can do all of the things. Like you can have meals and you can have Bible study and you can break bread and you can pray and you can call something fellowship that isn't fellowship. And it doesn't mean there's power. We've all been in those situations, right, where we're like, the right things are being done, but it feels devoid. We want the power and Spirit of God to move among us. For our good, but also for the good of those around us. We, because God is alive. He's not just a thought. They're not going, remember Jesus? Jesus is alive. And so they're praying to Him and talking about Him, and He is moving among them. Church, 2,000 years later, God is alive. Jesus is on the throne, and He has left us His Spirit to testify, and He has given us His people. We do not have to wait for Pentecost to occur. It has occurred. The Spirit of God is here. And He has given us His Word, the Apostles' teaching, right? He's given us His Spirit. He's given us His promises. He's given us His character. And He's given us one another. So would we make much of Jesus, devote our, thing, our, our lives to Him, and see the fruit that is produced for the good of our community and for the glory of Jesus' name? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that You have not left us on an island. Thank You that we are not isolated. Thank You that You have seen fit to give the folks in this room one another. And so would we begin to look around and see one another as a gift from the hands of our good Father and Almighty God? And would we walk in daily dependence upon You, devoting ourselves to one another, to Your Word, to prayer, and to telling people how beautiful and good You are. And Lord, then would we expect You to do what You've done? So God, we confess we don't do this well, but we need You. And we want to be transformed more into Your image. God, would You stir in us joy, generosity, and affection for You, for your bride. In Jesus' name, amen.